0: Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Carrington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles, if you would please, and turn to Luke chapter 24 as we make our way through this chapter very close to the end not only of the chapter but through our journey through luke luke chapter 24 we're going to look at verse 13 through 35 a big chunk i think we can do it i'll have to admit that i have fallen victim to chap gpt3 or however you say that the AI that's available online that can help you Google things of that nature. Our title is Eyes Open Wide, but according to chap GP3, the phrase, I was this this year old when I learned. How many of you have ever heard that phrase? I was this year old when I learned. Anyone ever heard that phrase? Well, according to that, it's often used humorously, or introspectively to share when someone discovered something new or gained a particular insight that they never knew before throughout their life. Here's a few examples. Excellent job, Nolan. It says here, here's one. I was this year old when I learned that penguins are birds. I always thought they were just fancy tuxedo-wearing animals. Another one. I was this year old when I learned how to properly fold a fitted sheet. By the way, I have not yet learned to do so. Up until now, it was just a ratch, a wrestling match. Are you the same? Ways. There are different ways. But I was this year old when I learned that Q, Q-U-E-E, when you get Q-U-E-U-E, when you're in a line... Just followed by a Q is followed by four silent letters waiting their turn. Do you get it? Q, silent letters, (laughs) waiting line to be used. No, I will explain it to you later. These examples showcase the playful and reflective nature of a phrase in sharing personal moments of realization or newfound knowledge. Now, I would have to tell you that I had one uh, last March when I was in Branson, Missouri. You can see it up here. When I learned something, I was 58 years old when I learned, is that on the screen? Do I have that one for you? Because it doesn't make sense unless you can see it. Is when I noticed is that when you see a weather forecast, you'll see like Wednesday has rain and it says 60%, Saturday, 30, Sunday, 40, so on. I always thought that was a percentage that it might rain. But I was 58 years old when I learned that that is not true. What it means is that on Wednesday, 60% of the recorded area will receive some precipitation. So it doesn't mean the percentage of rain you'll get. It just means the area that may see precipitation. So that is my reflective, as I always had assumed that it was just a percentage of rain. We've all have these types of blind spots. Yes, and we all have these blind spots in various points in our lives, things in which we just took for granted or rather, rather we just didn't learn certain things. Most of them, though, are harmless, though some can be dangerous and harmful, not only to ourselves, but to others, to those that we love. In today's passage, we're going to observe two disciples of Christ. They're going to have some glaring blind spots in their theology. In other words, they're going to have one of those, I was this year old when I learned that caused them, though, to lose hope in the promises of God. Last week, Luke narrated the the eyewitness accounts of three women who arrived at Jesus' tomb early on Sunday morning, you may recall, only to find it empty. Bewildered, puzzled, uncertain, and troubled by this, they are approached by two angels who remind them of Jesus' teaching that he would rise from the grave. Remembering his words, they quickly return to the other disciples with the good news of Jesus' resurrection, only to be disregarded and dismissed by the men. Ladies, you probably have understood this. You've experienced this type of thing. Peter, though, is curious enough to run to the tomb, and he himself finds that, indeed, the tomb is empty. So with that, we find ourselves in Luke chapter 24... As we come to understand that the empty tomb and the resurrection is important in that it grants us certainty. It grants us confidence and assurance that just as Jesus has been raised from the tomb, that he has been made alive, so are we. As we learned last week, that the power that raised Jesus from the dead has also raised us to new life. And because of that, you and I, therefore, are to walk worthy of our calling as ambassadors of Christ. So with that, we turn to Luke chapter 24. Look at verse 13. It's in the first two, three verses going to be here on the monitor. But again, I would encourage you to bring your Bibles, your tablet, your phone, whatever you use. If you would like a good app, please let me know. I could share one with you. Uh, if If you need a hard copy of God's word, I'd love to give you one of those as well. In Luke 24, verse 13, it says that that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you this morning to give us wisdom discernment. Father, we're going to find that these, these, these men, their eyes and hearts were blinded to the truth. So if that's the case here today with anyone in our congregation, anyone who may be listening or watching this at a later time, that you would open up our minds, our hearts, to see the truth of Scripture, to see the reality of the empty tomb. And that this has been taught throughout the Scriptures Father, thank you for this passage. I thank you for this narrative. And I pray that it would just spur us on to a greater confidence, a greater certainty, and a greater commitment to follow you. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, Luke's narrative now is going to focus on two disciples of Jesus, not one of the 11. So these are two disciples that are not of the 11 who are traveling to Emmaus that Sunday afternoon after hearing the story and the report of the women. The tomb is empty. So they begin to take a walk. They have heard the women's tale of Jesus' body missing. They've heard of the angel's proclamation that Jesus has risen from the dead and is now alive, along with Peter's testimony of running to the tomb and finding it empty. As you can imagine, as they are traveling, they are at a loss and puzzled as they ponder the morning's events. Now, as they are discussing these strange developments, Jesus joins them on their journey. However, they do not recognize Jesus in his resurrected body. Luke points out that their failure to recognize Jesus was not because he looked different, though he did. In other words, he's perfect, but that they were supernaturally kept from identifying him. Of course, humanely speaking, or humanly speaking, I should say, he would probably be the last person they would expect to walk up on them. Now we go on to verse 17, and we're going to read some larger passages here. And Nolan, we're going to have to ask you to be just a little bit more quiet, okay? In verse 17, Jesus asked them a question. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him and said, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed and word before God and all the people and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Look at verse 21. Here you see their heart. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. You may want to underline that or highlight that. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of the women in our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And in verse 24, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see so as jesus inquires through their conversation they're surprised to find that he's not even aware of the events that have occurred in jerusalem over the last week of course he is but he's kind of i hate to say playing devil's advocate that seems to be a bad term to say of of our savior but however he's just kind of inter, uh, saying kind of acting that what's happening what are you talking about they then shared how all of their hopes all of their dreams all of their aspirations were bound in a man that they believed was the Messiah, the anointed one of the Lord. To their dismay, the religious and political leaders had condemned their only hope to death and crucified him three days ago. They then voiced their surprise that that very morning it was discovered that Jesus' body was missing with angels declaring that he was alive, but no one had actually seen him. Jesus responds to their statement in verse 25, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And here, verse 26 is key. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Luke writes, he interpreted them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Jesus here responds with rebuke, and he begins to teach him that the scripture pointed out the necessity of a suffering Messiah. This should not surprise them. They are probably wondering: who is this man? And who is he to instruct us? We are disciples of Jesus. Well, Jesus is pointing out that they have been taught the scriptures since they were young children. However, they have not interpreted and implied the scriptures correctly. They do not understand. Luke continues the narrative in verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far spent." So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at the table with them, he took the bread, and he blessed and broke it, and he gave it to them. And look at verse 31. And their eyes were open, and they what? Recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not, one, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? While he opened to us the scriptures? And they arose that same hour and returned Jerusalem and they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told him what happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So what we get from them is just summarizing as they approach the city, it's getting late and they invited him to stay with them overnight as a guest. And while sitting at the table for dinner, Jesus begins to pray. And suddenly we see that their eyes are open to the identity of their guest. Here is Jesus. They cannot believe what they're seeing. Surprisingly, though, Jesus vanishes before them. And then they remark on the impact his teaching had on them. Right then and there, they decide to make the journey back to Jerusalem the whole seven miles there in the dark to tell the rest of the disciples of their encounter with Jesus. With conviction, they proclaimed to the disciples, the remaining 11, that they had seen the risen Christ along with Peter, and they recount all of what Jesus had taught them on the road to Emmaus. Now, Luke includes this Emmaus road encounter, and he is the only one, by the way, in the Gospels that includes it so that we may have confidence and certainty about the the man and the ministry of Jesus Christ." Again, Luke is the only gospel that includes this story, and he does so to highlight three needs, I believe, or I'm going to point out three needs that we see of the believer in light of the resurrection of Christ. There are three needs that Jesus points out or Luke points out in this passage. And so here's the three needs. The first one is you and I need the the need for the Old Testament as scripture. You and I need to see the Old Testament is important. We need to see that it is scripture on par with the New Testament. Though this passage is about the resurrection of Jesus, it emphasizes that you and I can only understand the miraculous events of Jesus' resurrection in light of the Old Testament. One pastor who, one pastor who is uh, very passionate about reaching today's postmodern generation Right believe, rightly believes that the resurrection is the centerpiece of scripture is a centerpiece that jesus is christ because the tomb is empty he is jesus he is messiah the savior of the world unfortunately however this passion for lost souls has led him to disregard the teachings and the importance of not only the Old Testament, but very much of the New Testament. The pastor calls for church leaders, and here's a pastor, probably one of the largest churches in America, one of the most influential pastors in America. This is what he says. He calls for church pastors and leaders to consider unhitching your teaching of what it means to follow Jesus from all the old things in the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. He says this is necessary because it comes to be a stumbling block to faith. The Old Testament is right up there in becoming a stumbling block for young people to believe in the facts of Christ. In other words, he believes that the stories and the claims of the Old Testament are harmful to today's audience he proclaims that people today find it difficult to believe that god created the entire universe in six days by the way it's not just unbelievers that struggle that there are many christians and christian professors and christian universities that are arguing the point that he did not they have a problem believing that god created uh, only male and female. That God destroyed the world with a worldwide flood. Just last week, this again became an argument among Christian professors and pastors. And that God sent a great fish to swallow Jonah. These are just some of the things he says, these are stumbling blocks. People cannot believe this thing. This prevents people from accepting the Bible. Theologian Michael J. Kruger writes that this pastor is willing even to reject, listen to this, he is even willing to reject the Ten Commandments. The pastor says the Ten Commandments have no authority over you. None. Then he goes on to say, to be clear, thou shalt not obey the Ten Commandments, he writes. He goes even further. He says Paul never leverages the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, as a basis for Christian behavior. So thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not covet. All of these could be just thrown away. This is from one of the most influential and powerful pastors and pulpits in the United States. Kruger goes on to state that for this pastor, the old covenant, the Old Testament, is about hating enemies. The new is about loving them. The old covenant is filled with misogyny where women are commodities. But under the new they are partners. In the Old Covenant, God is holy, but the New Covenant, God is love, as if he's no longer holy. The Old Covenant, God is angry, but the New Covenant, God is brokenhearted. In the Old Covenant, people relied on the Bible, but in the New Covenant, they are just people. This pastor therefore calls for Christians, churches, and pastors to distangle themselves from the Old Testament. Sadly, this pastor is mistaken. And his present trajectory has proven not only his error in this regard, but now as he now questions the importance of the virgin birth of Christ, along with any and all of his miracles. And he has a passion to win people to Christ. But to do so, he wants to eject all of the things that speak of Christ. Christ. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Because I want to share with you, instead of following this pastor's error, Jesus asserts and highlights the importance of the Old Testament. The Apostle Paul writing to Timothy reminds him of the importance of the Old Testament in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And look with me at verse 14. Timothy or Paul is writing to Timothy and he says, but as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believe knowing from whom you've learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Well, as Paul is writing this, what are the sacred writings that Timothy has grown up being taught? The old scriptures, the Old Testament. He says, which are able to make you wise for salvation through whom? Jesus Christ, our Lord. So the Old Testament is enough to make you wise toward salvation through Christ. Then he goes on to say, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching us what is right and wrong, for reproof to tell us when we've gone wrong, For correction, tell us how to get right, how to get back on the right track. And then for training in righteousness, how to stay right, how to stay on that narrow path. Why? So that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So you and I have to see the need of the Old Testament, It is only through the foundation of the Old Testament that you and I can understand the importance of the resurrection resurrection, and vice versa. We can now understand more fully the Old Testament as we read the New. The Old Testament is inspired, breathed out by God and is not to be depreciated. It is not to be dismissed nor disregarded or disentangled or unhitched. If you're like me, your New Year's resolution to read through the Bible is going well until you and I get stuck as we reach the middle of Exodus and into Leviticus, right? But it is in Leviticus that helps us understand the atonement and the substitute uh, sacrifice of Christ. It helps us understand what is happening at Calvary. It is in Exodus and Leviticus that you and I learn how a wicked and rebellious people, you and I, can approach a holy, just, loving God. Now, I agree that the Old Testament can be difficult at times, but I want to encourage you. This need to read the Old Testament is important. So I encourage you to continue to read, praying that God will give you great insight into his wonderful plan of redemption that's found as soon as you hit Genesis 3.15. Even in the beginning, we write, Read very clearly, in the beginning, God created. Now, first is the need of the Old Testament. The second point that we see here is the need to interpret and apply Scripture, the Old Testament, in particular, correctly. Secondly is the need to interpret and apply Old Testament Scripture correctly. As you and I look back at the expectation of the disciples, we see that in some ways they were correct. Looking back at verse 19 of Luke 24, the disciples described Jesus as a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and the word of God, and and mighty indeed and word before God and all the people. Jesus made a mark. Remember, they were amazed at his teaching. They they knew that he taught as someone who had authority. After following Jesus for some time, listening to his life-changing messages witnessing his wondrous miracles and observing his righteous living. They had been convinced that Jesus was the promised Messiah. He was the anointed one of the Lord. And they admit in verse 21, all of our hopes was found in him that he would be the man to redeem Israel. Now this hope is far first found in Psalms in the Old Testament, in Psalms 25 too, David sings, redeem Israel, O God, out of all of his troubles. So in Jesus, they were saying, this is the one who will redeem us. And like all Jewish men and women, the source of their strength in enduring the centuries of subjugation by their enemies was the promise that was given to them through the law, through the prophets and the writings, that Yahweh would one day send a Redeemer to deliver them from all of their enemies and restore them as a nation with the rightful heir of King David sitting on the throne. This was their hope. This was their expectation. Every child that was born in the line of David would come with the anticipation, is, is he the one? Is he the one? Is he the fulfillment of the promises? Now, at this point in time, as we're looking at these men of Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, it has been centuries before, since the promises have been made, uh, actually millennia or more. There have been no prophets in Israel for over 400 years. God has been silence. But here, Jesus arrives on the scene with the the interesting and adventurous John the Baptist setting the stage by proclaiming that the time was near to repent. Anticipation is high in Israel as Jesus proves to be more than just a mere prophet. He had proven himself to be more than just a mere man. Jesus was recognized as a prophet in Israel by many, In the New Testament, we say Jesus himself, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. You can remember that when he would travel back to Nazareth, the people didn't believe in him. He refrained from doing many miracles because of that. (laughs) Jesus again in Luke 13 says, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and following the day, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. After raising a young man who was dead back to life, in Luke 7:16, it says that fear seized all those who witnesses Jesus' power. And they glorified God saying this, "A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people." They believed that Jesus was fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18:15, as you look here on the monitor that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. However, as these men are walking down the road back to Emmaus, their hopes are dashed. As we relate to Jesus, that the chief priest and the rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. They remarked that it's now been three days since these things happened. I don't know if you've ever had your dreams and aspirations broken or destroyed, something you desired that did not come to be. But if you have, you understand maybe what they were feeling, at least maybe a tiny bit. But these men are really defeated men as they're walking back. I wonder if they're walking away because why else should we stay in Jerusalem with the rest of the disciples? Not sure why they're going to Emmaus, but here we see their spirits are crushed. Though Jesus had warned them of this fact that he would be be crucified and dead, along with the promise that he would rise from dead, he had been sharing that with them for years, but yet still, these two men, along with the 11 and the rest of the disciples, are rudderless and confused. They don't know what to do. They can't get together and decide anything. In Luke chapter 9, verse 22, Jesus had taught, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day he will be raised. Jesus had shared with them at least three times that's recorded in the Gospels for us, that Jesus would continue. Remember, Paul or Peter uh Peter would say, no, not let it, it will not be so. And, and Jesus says, depart from me, you wicked. You know, get behind me, Satan. Jesus responds to their defeated attitude by rebuking them. He says, oh, oh foolish ones and slow of heart. He calls them and he uses the walk to Emmaus as a teaching tool as Luke records that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, speaking of Genesis all the way through Malachi, he interprets to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. John MacArthur writes in his commentary, you'll see it here, I believe on the monitor. He says the gist of what he expounded would have undoubtedly included an explanation of the Old Testament sacrificial system. What was that all about? Why were they killing bulls and sheep and rams and birds? Which was full of types and symbols. It spoke of his suffering and death. He goes on to say he also would have pointed them to the major prophetic passages that spoke of the crucifixion, such as we see in Isaiah. He would have pointed out the true meaning of the passages of, of David and the others and a host of other key messianic prophecies, particularly those that spoke of his death and resurrection. You see, the problem, though, wasn't that they did not know the Old Testament scriptures. Remember, for they have grown up listening and memorizing what you and I would call the Old Testament. They knew them better than you and I. The problem wasn't that they did not know the scriptures. The problem was that they had not interpreted or applied scripture correctly. The apostle Paul commands Timothy, I believe also here on the monitor, do your best to present yourselves to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. This is where we get Awanas, approved workmen are not ashamed. We need to handle the word of God correctly. And just leave that up for for you for a moment as you look at that. The problem that we have today as we speak of that pastor is that he is not handling the word of God correctly, as are many not handling correctly. There are too many people who will not take the time nor the energy to interpret and apply the word of God correctly. The key to doing so is finding the intent of the author. In other words, you and I have to find out what the author means. Uh, I don't know how many times you've been in this in a Bible study or maybe a class. I don't know if you remember English literature and maybe your senior year of high school. Uh, that's when I took it. We would read a poem and they would, and then the teacher would always say, well, what does that poem mean to you, right? Or what does that song mean to you, whatever. And, and, and we would have uh, 10, 15 different uh, ideas of what that meant. However, our teachers that I can recall can never meant saying what did the author intended to mean with that. It's the same way with scripture. How many times have you been in a Bible study? You read a portion of scripture, and the guy points to you and says, "What does that scripture mean to you?" Ah, oh, it's good. What What does that scripture mean to you? Ah, oh, awesome. How about you? And again, you'll get five to seven different types of interpretations. But then all of them just sit there and say, ah, that's good. And many times, they're all contradictory of one another. But see, you and I have to get back and say, what is it is that the author is intending to share with us? This is a danger today, as many are picking and choosing what they want to believe in the Bible. Thomas Jefferson did that with his famous Jefferson Bible where he would take his Bible and he would cross out or mark out, cut out all the miracles of Jesus because he didn't believe that Jesus was the son of God. Some have gone as far as to pit Jesus against Paul, saying that they contradict each other. However, Peter writes in 2 Peter, as we saw earlier in our scripture reading, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation even the writer in that case for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from god as they were carried along by the holy spirit so we have scripture here that is breathed out inspired by god both the old and both the new and so because of that you and i have the responsibility to interpret and to apply the scripture correctly If they had interpreted and applied the Old Testament correctly, they would have understood the necessity of a suffering Messiah. The whole storyline of the Bible points to Jesus and his purpose. Again, I'll give it to you once again. The story of the Bible is that the prince slays the dragon and wins the girl. There's a reason why that resonates from everything to Ivanhoe Hull, to, to the Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, so on and so forth, because Jesus is the prince who slays the dragon, Satan. And as you and I look at slaying the dragon, Jesus slays the dragon not by, by wielding a sword or a spear, but by allowing himself to be pierced by a spear and giving up his life. And, of course, as we say, in doing so, he raises from the, rises from the dead, and he wins the girl, which is the bride of Christ, which is the church, is you and I. And so you and I have to recognize that the Bible, the Old Testament, is telling us this story. It's telling us who the prince is. We're telling us who the dragon is, who the girl is, how will he slay, how will he win. And all of that, it points to Christ's Theologian Garland rightly concludes that Jesus did not overwhelm these two disciples by some spectacular revelation of himself that imposes faith on them. Isn't it interesting? Jesus didn't do a miracle. He doesn't even show them at this point the the nail prints on his hand or the the spear, the wound on his side. He doesn't do any of that. Instead, he does it the old-fashioned way by interpreting scripture for them they need to hear the word of god to clear up the confusion of their own words as charles spurgeon said the prince of preachers he declared from every text in the bible there is a road to jesus and so when you and i read scripture we understand it in the light that jesus is that prince he is the anointed one of god so first we see the importance, the need for the Old Testament. Secondly, we see the need to interpret and apply the Old Testament correctly because this is what led them to lose hope. But then here's third, the third need. The third need is for our eyes to be supernaturally opened. Our eyes to be supernaturally open. Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. As you're turning there, Thomas Schreiner comments on these two men. He says the two disciples then note that it's the third day since Jesus rose or was crucified. And for them, this is an indication that the promise had not been actualized. But the third day for Luke is the day of resurrection, the day of redemption, the day the promises are realized. He goes on to say that we see multiple biblical antecedents here. Listen to this. Isaac is delivered from Abraham's knife on the third day on the journey. The Lord comes down and meets his people on Sinai on the third day. Hosea proclaims that the Lord will raise Israel on the third day, and Jesus himself predicted he would raise, rise on the third day. So, as scripture, you always see the third. You'll see 70. You'll see 40. So, you'll see that there are things in which there are cycles, repetitive things that are teaching us. These two are not only, though, prevented from recognizing Jesus physically, but they also do not perceive the significance of the words they are saying, not realizing that the matters they have discussed have been fulfilled. They are blinded to that fact, even though that they follow Jesus. Listen, to Jesus, were disciples. They're still blinded. That they did not understand at first should not surprise us, as the Bible warns us in Second Corinthians chapter four. Look at verse three. If our gospel is veiled, in other words, if we are not able to see it. It is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. At this time, they were blinded. They could not see the truth. In his first letter to the church of Corinth, (coughs) Paul had pointed out that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And that Jews demand a sign, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to the Jews, and it's folly or foolishness to the Gentiles. Why? Because their eyes are blinded. You may recall that Paul knew what it meant or what it was like to be blinded to the wondrous news of the gospel. For he once was a persecutor of the church, Seeking to quench its influence and stop its growth. However, on his road to Damascus, Jesus supernaturally intervened as he introduced himself to Paul physically by blinding him. Yet, in the mercy of God, Paul believed, we called him Saul at that time, but he believed and repented from his sins and been then baptized. Luke writes that at his baptism that immediately something like scales failed from Paul's eyes. Remember, he was blinded on that road. This physical miracle is similar to the spiritual miracle that happens when the Holy Spirit blows like the wind. Remember Jesus' teaching to Nicodemus, the Spirit blows and hearts are regenerated. Paul encouraged believers, seen here on the monitor, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So God has opened our eyes as the means to ambassadors to Christ so that God may open the eyes of others as we share the gospel. So you and I, again, as a, just as in an advertisement for Randy's teaching in the adult core class at 945, as we are ambassadors for Christ, it is through us that God makes his appeal for man to be reconciled to God. But as we're doing that, it's us sharing the gospel, praying that the Holy Spirit will open the blind eyes of the lost, that they may see the good news and repent and turn towards Him. You and I must recognize that our families and friends are in need to have their eyes wide open. But this only happens as the Spirit uses our obedience in sharing the gospel. Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount, You are the salt of the earth, but the salt lost its taste. How shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be trampled under people's feet. He goes on to say, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. He goes on in the same way as you can picture that right now in your mind's eye. Let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So there is a need for you and I to know Scripture. There is a need for you and I to interpret and apply all the scripture, including the Old Testament. And there is a need for us to pray that not only our eyes, but the eyes of others will be open. Do you find it interesting is that when the two men are on a road to Emmaus, when they are walking with Jesus, though they do not know it's Jesus, they're not witnessing him telling him about a risen Savior. They're telling him about their hopes being dashed. So we talk about this all the time. If you were on a seven-minute walk, a jog, not a jog, who's going to (laughs) jog? But on a seven-minute walk, well, seven miles, seven minutes, seven miles, whatever it may be, maybe it's a three-minute elevator ride, how would you share Christ? What would you use? How would you get them to understand or share with them as quickly as possible and as effectively as possible that what Christ has done for you? So what do we learn from this passage? How are you and I to respond to Jesus' words and their response? First, number one, is you and I need to begin and read and pray through the Old Testament. Stay with it. And I know many of you have. I think uh, Mike and Jesse have worked their way, or at least Mike has worked their way. The Old Testament, I think a few of you shared uh, as well. Continue doing it and pray that the Holy Spirit may teach us to know all of Scripture. As Schreiner notes of these two men, their fundamental fault of those two men is that they do not trust Scripture And their foolishness and slowness of heart actually represented a moral failing. For they should believe all that the prophets have spoken. Do you believe all the promises of the prophets? Number two, commit to doing all that Scripture commands us to do. Trust in the person and the promises of God. That's interpreting and implying the Old Testament, the New Testament correctly. You and I are to live out His unconditional love for us through the two great commandments: love God and love our neighbors. Dr. Joel Beakey and Paul Smiley has a lecture on the law and the gospel. He says the law, and actually this is interesting because this is what um, uh, excuse me, Randy is teaching us is how you and I can use the law because it has an important role in today and the gospel. They are not contradictory, but are complementary. He says the law and the gospel are like two hands of God by which he reaches out to save us by his grace and leads us to his glory. Both law and gospel are essential parts of the Holy Scriptures. We cannot neglect either of them without rejecting the word of God. And then thirdly, Praying for the Spirit to open our hearts, our minds, our emotions, and our will to the truth of Scripture. In the same way, you and I need to earnestly pray for our loved ones, our friends, our family, that the Spirit would open their eyes to the wonderful news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul writes to the Church of Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. This includes the miracles of Christ, the great grand stories of the Old Testament that many times can be very difficult to understand. All of this is found in God's word. We need to come to know it, interpret it, apply it, accept it as God has given it to us. Let me leave you with just one last quote by Benjamin Keach. He writes that rocks and stones are naturally rough, and unfit for use until they are hewed and square. So the hearts of wicked men are naturally rough and unfit for any spiritual use until they're hewed by the ax and hammer of the word. The Old Testament, the New Testament breathed out for God. There is a need to understand that. There is a need to interpret and apply it correctly. And there's a need for us to pray that our hearts and the hearts of those we care about would be supernaturally open to understand that Jesus is the prince who slays the dragon, wins the girl, so that we may be saved. Let's take a moment, if you would, as the worship team makes their way up. Just last take a moment to pause and just consider this story. I know you've heard the story of the road to Emmaus many times. But I'd like for you to consider it in a new way, especially in light of the three things that we shared the need of the Holy, the, of the Old Testament, the need to interpret it and apply it correctly, and the need for our eyes to be supernaturally open. God works in all these ways so that we may be uh, able to walk worthy to the calling that He has called us to. And I'd like for you to take a moment just to pray and ask God to give you strength to either begin reading Scripture including the Old Testament. Maybe it's the Lord, help me understand it. Let me not give up. Help me to find a teacher, a mentor, someone who can help me through it. Help me to get the materials that I need to help me understand it. And then also to be praying diligently, not only for your heart, but for the hearts of others. Maybe you hear today that you need your heart open. If so, I pray that you just pray, Father, open my heart, send the spirit, for I want to hear and know and understand your word. And that my hope may also be found in Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, not only of Israel, but of the Bride of Christ. He's returning. Let us be ready for that moment. Would you take a moment to do so and respond to whatever the Holy Spirit is having for you? Let's pray. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others.